There's a scene in the movie Blood Diamond, which I think helps us to understand the meaning of these scripture passages we've read today, and to understand as well what needs to be in place for us to build the most remarkable relationships possible with the people around about us. For those who may not have seen the film, Blood Diamond is set amidst the a brutal civil war that engulfed the West African nation of Sierra Leone back in 1999. One of the great horrors of that particular time was the effect of the war upon the children of the nation. Warlords of that period uh, purposely would kidnap young children. Uh, they would steal young boys from their homes, often slaughtering their parents, sometimes leaving them behind. They would take the boys and begin to indoctrinate them in the ways of the war. They would train them to become brutal killers, soldiers of the warlord's army, or they would send them to work in the slave mines that produced what came to be called conflict diamonds. Conflict diamonds. In this particular film, one of these stolen and A disfigured children is a little boy named Dia. Dia, now a teenager, is a brainwashed soldier and killer. And in the climactic scene of the film, a diamond smuggler named Danny, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, and a local mente fisherman named Solomon have just discovered a precious, actually priceless, pink diamond. Dia comes upon them as they're making this discovery. And immediately recognizing the incredible value of the diamond that these two men have in their hands and what that diamond would mean to his warlord masters, Dia turns his gun towards Danny, preparing to fire. At just that moment, the fisherman, Solomon, looks up. And gazing deep into the cold eyes of the young killer boy, Solomon recognizes the fading flicker of his long-lost son, the one stolen from him. Dia, he says, what are you doing? The boy turns and trains his gun now on Solomon looking confused. Look at me, says Solomon. What are you doing? You are Diavandi of the proud Mente tribe. You are a good boy who loves school and soccer. Solomon begins to walk closer now to Dia. Your mother, he says, Loves you so much. She waits by the fire making plantains and red palm oil stew with your sister Nihanda and the new baby. Tears are streaming now down the father's cheeks. The cows, the cows, they wait for you as does Babu, the wild dog, who obeys no one but you. Tears now stream from the eyes of Dia, as Solomon continues, I know they made you do very bad things, Dia, but you are not a bad boy. I am your father. 
who loves you. And you will come home with me and be my son again. And the boy drops his gun as the father takes him in his arms, recovering his son. Does this story sound at all familiar? I hope it does. Because it is the story that Jesus told long ago in Luke chapter 15. I hope it sounds familiar. Because this story, this story, beloved, is our story. It is the story of everyone that you ever meet in this world. It is the story of the people you know in your home, in your workplace, in your church, in your neighborhood. This is the story the Bible tells about all of humanity. The Bible teaches that we have all been taken from that one true home that was our life with God in the beginning. All of us have had our wills bent over time. We have been disfigured and taught to serve powers that apparently offered us much, but which cared very, very little in actuality for us. Forgetting our origins, we are progressively trained by these powers to chase after all of those shiny rewards on which this world's masters have placed a ridiculous value. Desperate in our insecurity from our earliest ages, we learn to jockey for rank and for position with one another. We desperately work to be heard by each other. We try to prove ourselves worthy from the time we're little children trying to get our dad and mom's attention and then our friend's attention and then our, a girl's attention or a boy's attention and then our workplace co-workers' attention and the world's attention. We're trying to be heard, to be declared worthy, to find our place. And most of the time, we don't even recognize how obsessed we are, how caught up we are in this struggle, how the brutal things we say to each other, the savage and stupid things we do to one another are not our best self because everybody else is much much the same, all of us saying, doing the same kinds of things. We can always name somebody who is even harder, even more hurtful than we are. But all of us, every one of us, all the people you know, we are victims and we are perpetrators in the same civil war. And then, for some of us, as for Dia, the voice of our Father finally penetrates the madness. And like a shadow at first, and then like the glorious goodness that God is, he comes to us, helping us to remember who and whose we truly are. And we realize perhaps at that time, or we start to, that 
we can come home. We can come home. We see that the Father's love is larger than all of our lacks. His forgiveness is greater than all of our failures. His capacity to restore us is infinitely more powerful than all of this world and that we ourselves have done to ruin us. And we finally understand that we are truly welcome in the Father's arms, not because of how good and beautiful we are, but because of how good and beautiful God is. And in the words of St. John, we come to see how great, how great is the love the Father has lavished onto us that we should be called the children of God. And that's what we are. That is what we are. Is that what you are in this sense? Is that what you are? For many weeks now, we have been thinking and talking a lot about relationships, right? I mean, we've gotten into it here. The ins and the outs and the struggle of relationships. We've been talking mainly about our relationships with all these people around us. But I am convinced that it is this relationship with our Heavenly Father that is the most remarkable relationship of all. And the relationship which, when it is really intimate and real, transforms the character of our other relationships as nothing else will. Over these past weeks, I've been looking at all of these practical suggestions about how we build these more remarkable relationships. I'm going to come back next week and hit one more session and look at some of the particular practices. But let me just stop here and say that, that all of the things that I'm saying along the way, these are just techniques. Right? And they will not take us very far. They will not transform our relationships until there lives within us a different kind of heart, until there grows up within us the heart of the Father himself. I found in my own relationships that I am only able to fine-tune and tweak things a little bit until God comes and fills me up with a new way of looking and feeling and, and living into the people around me. And so I think I'd be failing you in this whole series if if I didn't dare to ask the most important question. Have you come home to God? Have you come home to God? I don't mean have you ever heard of God or talked about God. I don't mean have you ever considered yourself a child of God the way everybody on the planet is who is sort of under the umbrella of the creator. People talk in those terms all the time. What I mean is, are you a child in the way that that the Bible describes a child of God? Is it you toward whom the Father is gazing intently with the kind of look that you saw in the eyes of Solomon towards Dia? Is it you towards whom he's looking this very day with a look of very special recognition 
saying, I know you. I have a hope for you. Is it you to whom he is speaking the words of invitation this morning? Is it to you to whom he is saying, I am your father. And I love you with a lavish love, dear. You, you are the precious diamond for whom I have been searching that I may clean you and polish you and lift you up. Come home with me. Come home with me. And be my child again. I pray that your answer, if you've never given it before, to that invitation is, yes, Father. Yes, Father, I want to be yours. I want your life to clean me, polish me, lift me up, renew me. I want to come home. And if you answered that yes this morning and you've never told anybody else that you've answered that yes, speak to me after the service this morning. Write to me this week. Call. I want to welcome you into the family. I want to point you on the path to the great adventure that lies ahead for you, the rest of your story, the best part of your story. In our scripture text for today, the Apostle John says that God's ultimate intention, his plan, is to transform his children's character. The Bible teaches that he wants to to change us from the inside out so that we start to see people and love people and interact and work with people with that pure kind of love with which God himself is pure. Because this purification process is slow. And it is difficult. You should be saying amen. I've experienced it. It's slow and difficult. Because that is true, sometimes people are going to look at you as they look at me and they wonder, does it really make a difference to have a personal relationship with the Father? Does that make any difference? But the reason, says John, that the world does not know us is that it does not know him. In other words, the world does not know what God has planned for his children. Now we are children of God, writes John. That's true today. If we've invited him into our lives, we're children of God today. But what we will yet be is not yet known. For we know that when he appears, when Christ comes again, and we stand one day, as you're going to stand one day before him, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, the Bible teaches. You see, in this life, most of us, we only get a glimpse of God. Right? I mean, every now and then, it just, certainly we see it. We see more of his character. And we go, whoa. I'm going to change a little bit here to be more like that. Most of, we come to a place like this, or we listen to a broadcast like this, to get a glimpse of God. But St. Paul reminds us, 
That's all we have right now. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he writes, Now we see but a poor reflection of him, as in a mirror. But on that final day, writes Paul, on that coming day, God's children will get to see him face to face. Face to face. And like a child, a little baby, looking up into the face of his or her daddy, it will be a transforming encounter on that day. We will look into the beauty and the goodness and the glory of our Father, and in the twinkling of an eye, this encounter will change us, and we will become just like him. We will be filled with a lavish love, just like him. And we will see people. And we will treat people. Just like he does. Effortlessly. Because he will be the all in us. And sometimes, sometimes, People who know that that's their destiny start to have a bit more of that vision even now. It was a warm afternoon when Fred Craddock, the famous preaching professor at Emory University stopped into a roadside diner in rural Tennessee. He sat down, and as happens in places like this, a stranger ambled by. They struck up a conversation. He was an old man. He seemed interested, especially so when he discovered that Craddock was a preacher, and without being invited, he sat down in the diner booth, and he began to talk. And Craddock groaned a little bit. This was going to take time. The man began to unravel what amounted to his life story. It turns out that the old geezer had grown up a bastard child. What that means for those who don't know the meaning of that word is that he had a mom, but he didn't know his dad. In fact, the mom wasn't entirely sure who was his dad. Father had come through town and disappeared. And in small towns in this day, uncertain lineage like this makes a kid the object of a lot of jokes, a lot of scorn, humiliation, and frankly, rejection. One day, the boy overheard talk that a a famous evangelist had come to that town to do a, a series of summer revival meetings at the local church. And although the boy knew better by now, that he shouldn't venture too blithely into the circle of respectable church-going folks, his curiosity began to get the best of him. And so on the first night of the revival, after the whole meeting had started and everybody was sitting down and the man was talking, the little boy snuck in the back door and sat down in the back pew utterly unnoticed. Well, the preacher's message 
was about a God who loved so lavishly even the unlovable, especially the unlovable. And the message was to this kid's heart like honey that met his hunger. And so, as the man finished and the song for the meeting began at the end, he snuck out again so as not to be seen, but he couldn't forget what he'd heard. And so he came back the next night, always following this exact same pattern. He'd come back night after night, sneaking in after the meeting began, sneaking out as everybody stood to sing the last song, until the very final night of the revival, and the boy was moved so powerfully that night by the message that he forgot to get up and go. And the meeting came to an end, and the song was sung, and all of a sudden people began flooding out into the aisles of the church, and his way was blocked, and he panicked. He knew he'd be recognized. And so faking a fit of coughing, he covered his mouth with his hand and began to fight his way out through the crowd towards the back door, and he was almost there. He was almost at the exit when he suddenly felt the weight of a hand come down on his shoulder, stopping him. And for just a moment, the weight of the hand was warm, gentle, and felt wonderful until it began to spin him around into his absolute shock and horror. He looked up into the face of the revival preacher himself. And the man was looking quite seriously at him. Wait just a minute, said the man. Don't I know you? I think I know your family. And the boy's heart rose in his throat in absolute agony, understanding clearly that either the man knew about his mom and his absent dad and he was going to be hit for it, or his, the man was making a terrible mistake and when that error was discovered, he would be utterly humiliated again and the little boy just said meekly, no, I don't think you know my family. And the man said, yes, I am quite sure of it now. I can see, I can see the family resemblance. I think I know your father. And the boy died a thousand deaths inside. And he said, no, no. And the man said, yes, I can see the resemblance. Why, why you're, you're God's boy, aren't you? Yes, I'm sure of it. I know who you are. And I know he has a wonderful plan for your life. Mr. Craddock, the old man in the diner, remarked as he stood up from the table, You have no idea the difference that those words have made. And with that, he stuck his newspaper under his arm and walked out the diner door. 
A moment later, the waitress who had been hanging back while the two men talked came over and refilled Craddock's coffee cup, and she said, Sir, I, I hope you forgive me, but I couldn't help but notice you talking to that, to that older man there. Did, did, did he, by any chance, tell you who he was? Craddock was just still dazed from the story he just heard, so he, he just shrugged and shook his head blankly. And the waitress smiled and said, Well, sir, that, that old man was Ben Hooper, two-time governor of the state of Tennessee. My friends, it's time to leave the diner. It's time to walk out of the revival meeting time to go back out there to this wild world where we've been called to go and live. And as we go out to that place, this much we can be totally sure of. We are going to meet all kinds of people. We're going to meet young people. We'll meet older people. We'll meet the put-together people. We'll meet the falling-apart ones. We'll meet the easy-to-like folks and the very hard-to-love people will meet the mad and the sad and the fooling you people. We're going to meet them all. They're going to be in your home. They're going to be in your neighborhood, your workplace, your school. They'll be on the train. They'll be wherever you go. Maybe even pouring your cup of coffee. Be gentle with them. Okay? Be kind to them. Be patient with them. Be those things 1 Corinthians 13 calls us to be with one another. Why? Because as the Bible declares, and Plato once concurred, everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. I mean, they are caught up in the great spiritual and civil war that rages in every corner of our world today. And if the Bible is right, and I believe it is, one day you are going to see these people differently than anybody else sees them. One day you're going to see these people finally and fully through the eyes of an absolutely pure and lavish love. And you will know absolutely for certain then what many people don't understand now, that what these people need is not more condemnation. What they need is not more shame. What they need is not more reminders of the things they're failing at and messing up at. What they need is not more discouragement and crushing demands and crazy expectations and more reasons just to run back to those cruel masters they've been serving for far too long anyway. What they need is the Father's love. What they need to change them is somebody who can remind them of their true home. Who can help them come again to find their place in the family. Who can help them discover the blessed work of that family. 
What they need is someone who is far less concerned with the dust ball they have been than with the diamond they can, by God's grace, become. They need somebody who will say to them, I know who you are. I know whose you are. Fellow children of God, fellow children of our Heavenly Father, why not love like this? Not just then, on the last day, but starting now. May it be so. Amen.